Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then he is also King of Salem, that is, King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. <clears throat> but this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, Ties are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. Sure, that's not the greeting that you were expecting this morning. I'll probably be, be uh, happy to have the, the all rights back uh, next week. Uh, but I'm actually uh, kind of quoting from the author of Hebrews when I say that. I don't actually think that about you. Um, but I'm quoting from Hebrews himself. Um, back in the beginning of chapter 5, the author of Hebrews is talking about human priests. Uh, and it says that they were able to deal gently uh, with the ignorant and wayward. Uh, people like you and me since he himself, the human priest, is beset with weakness. Um, and that was speaking of, of these human priests that, were no longer, that we have, no longer have a need for. As we have seen uh, throughout our series in Hebrews, uh, and, and we'll continue to see today, uh, that we now have a perfect, great high priest. Amen. But what does Jesus, now our one eternal great high priest, have to do with this Melchizedek character. Uh, the author of Hebrews has dropped little hints about this guy um, two other times, I believe, so far. Um, and as we've heard in a, in a couple other sermons, um, but each time he, he sort of kind of goes right up to the line of explaining um, what Melchizedek has to do with Jesus and then takes a quick just detour kind of around it. Uh, so, for example, the last time his name was brought up, was back in chapter 5, if you can turn quickly a page or two back uh, to chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 9. And this is speaking of Jesus, uh, when it says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a after the order of Melchizedek. But then right here, this is where the, the sort of disclaimer about why the author doesn't further discuss Melchizedek here in chapter 5 comes in, starting in uh, verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Ouch, that's it's kind of essentially saying, I, I have a lot more to say about this guy, 
and his connection to Christ, but you aren't ready for it yet, you ignorant people. So I really felt that myself uh, this week as I began studying uh, for this passage, um, but by God's grace, um, he did give me kind of a better understanding uh, through my study uh, this week of, of who Melchizedek was uh, and his significance in Scripture and his role in pointing to Christ. So I pray that today I'm able to give you that same um, insight into this passage uh, so that we can all see the light of Christ shining through, through his word this morning in Hebrews 7. And as a, as a quick disclaimer myself, um, while, while we only read verses 1 through 10, uh, this morning, I do plan to, in a general sense, cover the entire chapter of, of chapter 7. Um, however, as you, as you may have noticed, chapter 7 is, is very long. That's why I didn't have Katie read the entire thing for us. Uh, and there's, there's a lot there. Um, so when I get past verse 10, um, I will be hitting kind of more the, the high points and doing my best to draw together for you uh, to kind of give you the, the bigger picture of, of the overall chapter. Um, and here there's, there's a lot of details, uh, sometimes seem, seeming random and disjointed on, on just a quick read-through, uh, but I'll try to kind of draw all those together into the main idea of the chapter. And that said, um, we should all be students of the Word, not just rely on, on whoever's up here preaching. Uh, so I encourage you to spend uh, some time this next week studying chapter 7. I spent a lot of time in it this past week. I could spend several more weeks in this one chapter just trying to, to grasp it myself. Uh, so I encourage you to, to spend some time yourself. Don't rely on me to explain everything uh, for you this morning. For me, it helps to, to repeatedly go over something. So if it helps to this week study it and then listen to this sermon recording again later, that um, might be helpful to kind of grasp what is, uh, what is being said in this chapter. So I first um, want us to look at the historical narrative, as, as I tend to, to like to do. I like the, the historical context where Melchizedek is mentioned in the book of Genesis. That way we can all understand the who and when and where context of his story. And I think having that historical context is incredibly important to give us a basis for the understanding of his significance, of the few things that we do know about this guy and why he's mentioned in Scripture at all. After this, we'll kind of take those attributes that we know about Melchizedek, and I'm kind of showing my cards a little early here. I'm going to try to show how Melchizedek is a type of Christ, a type of Christ. Now, I'll explain more what I mean by type of Christ uh, when we get a little further into it later. But essentially, while being completely a fallen human being like you and me, Melchizedek parallels many attributes and roles of Christ. For example, his being a king and a priest, and how his priesthood not being connected to the Old Testament law made him superior to the priesthood under the law. Then finally, we will turn our attention completely to how his priesthood is more perfectly displayed in Christ Jesus himself. The reason, in fact, that Melchizedek remains so mysterious a figure in Scripture is, I think, to keep us from being distracted by details of his character and instead turning our attention to the one whom he is meant to point us to, Jesus, and the promises that we have in him. Before we do any of that, though, um, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer for clarity uh, as we go through this passage.
God, we thank you so much uh, for your inspired word this morning, that we can sit here together as brothers and sisters in Christ and to study it. Lord, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you give us clarity and understanding of what is being said and peace and assurance and confidence in the hope that we have in Christ, that we can draw near to the throne of grace. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your love. In your name we pray. Amen. So as, as I said, let's first take a look at the historical narrative of our friend Melchizedek. Now if we compiled all of the verses that we have in the Old Testament that mentions his name or details about him, we would have a grand total of a mere four verses. Three in Genesis 14 and one in a Psalm of David, Psalms 110. If we, had the verse, if we add the verses from Hebrews, then we might then have a total of seven or eight about him in the entire Bible. So not a lot of, uh, of detail, not a huge wealth of information that we have about this guy. But that doesn't make him totally insignificant either. There's nothing in the Word of God that is there by chance or accident. We believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, is completely inspired by God. The ultimate author of Hebrews or any of the books of the Bible is, is God, the Holy Spirit. And it's through the, the Holy Spirit's revelation to Moses in writing Genesis and to David in writing the psalm. And again, revealed to the author of Hebrews. Melchizedek is mentioned for a reason. Not at random, not, not by coincidence or chance, but for a purpose. So if you have your Bibles, let's, let's turn back to Genesis, chapter 14. And at the top of chapter 14, um, you may find in, in your Bible the added heading at the top of the paragraph that says, Abram rescues Lot. And it is in the context of, of this story that we see Melchizedek appear. But before we get into the details of that story, let's, let's all make sure that we remember who Abram and Lot are. Abram is later known by the name Abraham, after God makes his covenant with him. So I may use those names interchangeably. Uh, Abram slash Abraham is a, is a direct descendant of Noah. And he's the man that God chose to be the patriarch of his people, the Israelites. So he grew up in the city of Ur, which is in a, in a modern-day uh, Iraq, down uh, by the Persian Gulf. We've actually got a map uh, up there. Yeah, right down here in the corner next to the Persian Gulf is Ur. That's where Abraham uh, grew up. Then later, when he was still young, his father moved him and his family north to the city of Haran. So if you see kind of closer to the top of the little triangle that we've got there is Haran. Uh, so he spent then most of his life there. Uh, and that sits actually in southeastern Turkey today. So this is where Abram was when, when Genesis 12, uh, God tells him uh, in verse 1 of Genesis 12, uh, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will see, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. 
and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So chapter 12 of Genesis then goes on to tell about Abram, who is now in his 70s, and his wife Sarai, and how they uprooted their estate in Haran and left their home, also taking with them um, their adult nephew Lot, who decided to go with them, and also uprooting his household, taking all of his possessions and people. God then shows Abram the land that he will make the promised land, later known as Israel. Sometime later, uh, Abram and Lot realize that they need to separate because they, they each have so much livestock that the land that they were on could not sustain them all. So they had to spread out. Lot then chose to settle in the land of the Jordan Valley east of the Dead Sea. And I think on the next map we can see that a little bit more zoomed in. The Dead Sea, the, the bottom little lake-looking thing there. Um, Lot chose to, to settle to the east of the Dead Sea, uh, while Abram uh, settled to the west. Uh, and Lot settled near what is the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which there's a lot more about that there, but you know, we don't have time to get into that story. We're already taking quite a, quite a detour here. So now all that kind of sets the stage for the events introducing us to Melchizedek. While Abram and Lot were each in their, their new separate lands on each side of the Dead Sea, there was turmoil and an uprising between kings in the east. Now kings then were kind of kings over cities, not such like huge areas. So all those little cities had a separate king. And there was turmoil um, about something rising up. Uh, so some of them were kind of bending together into a sort of confederate army coming through and taking out cities in, in their way. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah tried to put up a fight, uh, but ultimately lost their battle and had everything looted and destroyed, and their cities taken away, the people taken away as hostages, including Abram's nephew, Lot. And there was then someone who es escaped these attacks, and I don't know if they knew Abram or just happened to, to come by him and give him this information, but they told Abram uh, that their nephew, Lot, had been taken captive by this army and that was now moving north. That's the green line that, where the army came through. So Abram, in an action fit for like a good vengeance movie, assembles his combat-trained men, 318 of them, it says in Genesis, and pursues this army in order to save his nephew. And after catching up to this army, it says that Abram divided his forces against them by night and defeated them. That's... It's pretty impressive. This army who had been coming through and, and sacking cities seemingly with little struggle, uh, but then Abram's militia chases them down and, and takes them out in a single night. It's kind of like Abram had God on his side. So after defeating them, it says that he brought back all the possessions. So all the things that had been looted and the prisoners taken by this army uh, as they ransacked the cities in their path, we're now in Abram's possession. As he makes his journey home, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem meet him along the way. And it says that the king of Sodom's main motive was to discuss who was going to keep all of these things that Abram had taken back from the invading army. The king of Salem, on the other hand, seemed to have less negotiating in mind, but instead came to bless Abram. And this king of Salem, if you recall from our first verse today in Hebrews 7, is Melchizedek. 
And Melchizedek is a very unique figure. So let's look again at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. So he was not only king of Salem, which in fact would later be called Jerusalem. It's an interesting fact, as Jerusalem literally means city of Salem. But Melchizedek was also, as it says, priest of the Most High God. So this city in the land of Canaan, which in the time of Abram was known for its godless depravity, somehow had a king who not only worshipped Abram's God, the Most High God, but he also served as priest for his people. That's pretty unusual. While being highly unusual, it also begins to touch on why the author of Hebrews is talking about Melchizedek in the first place, to point out those parallels between him and Jesus. Now, before we begin to highlight those parallels, those similarities between Melchizedek and Jesus, I want to make sure to lay out some of the different views uh, that have been held about the nature of Melchizedek's identity. However, I'm I'm going to spend a pretty brief time on, on this particular topic because ultimately it doesn't matter. If we were meant to know with certainty who Melchizedek was, then scripture would be clear on it. But it doesn't clearly say that any of the theories that I'm about to say are specifically correct. In this case, I think that Scripture is using its silence, what it doesn't say about Melchizedek, to say something that matters much more than who Melchizedek was. So the first theory uh, that has been held by some, we've got a slide with the theories, there you go, is that Melchizedek was actually Shem. Shem is one of Noah's sons. Though there is nothing in the text, in Genesis, in Hebrews, anywhere, to indicate such a specific detail. And Abram himself is many generations descended from Shem. So it would be like his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-granddad. Shem would have been hundreds of years old at this point. And people did, uh, some people did live long lifespans uh, during this time. But it still just seems unlikely. It seems that if this were true, that Scripture may have said that, but Scripture does not give us this detail. So how do you know? We're going to get further into other, into other uh, uh, theories here, so we'll see. We don't know for sure is, is the, the hint. Others have held that uh, Melchizedek was, was some kind of angelic or celestial being. Now this does seem a little bit more likely, especially if we take verse 3 of Hebrews 7 literally. Again, that says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So that does seem more like qualities of a celestial, angelic being. But again, the text doesn't indicate this specifically. And I believe this would be taking this passage from Hebrews too literally, when that was not the author's intent. If we take it that Melchizedek was literally without father or mother and was literally eternal, then we have to continue to take it literally that he remained a priest forever. 
but only one king and priest remains priest forever, our king and great high priest, Jesus. Instead of literally meaning that Melchizedek was never born of parents and instead just plopped into the world by God, Hebrews is drawing attention to the mystery of his life in order to then say how he resembles the Son of God, who is literally eternal. The Hebrews, the Hebrew people, uh, were very diligent keepers of their family genealogies. Even common people could trace their families back for many, many generations because of the, the good records that they commonly kept. So Melchizedek, a king of a major city, now having a, a, not having a well-known ge- genealogy would have been very unusual just on its own to the Hebrew readers. And this allowed the, the ultimate author of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit, to again parallel Melchizedek with Christ. So then that leads to the next view, that, that this was actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. There are other occasions in the Old Testament where Jesus appeared like this, before his birth in Bethlehem. But it's still difficult to reconcile this with the rest of verse 3. If this were, tr- were truly Jesus in pre-incarnate form, then why would Hebrews continue on by describing him as resembling the Son of God? Or, or to later describe Jesus' priesthood as in the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you were at an art museum and you saw a very detailed Renaissance painting of a bowl of fruit, you might look at that and say, wow, that looks just like a bowl of fruit. But we don't say that same thing about a real bowl of fruit. Because it, it's not, it doesn't look like a bowl of fruit. It, it is a bowl of fruit. So that language just doesn't really like kind of add up to, to say that Jesus looks a lot like Jesus. So I don't think that Hebrews is trying to say that. Nothing wrong with the, that opinion. There are the people that hold that, and I don't think there's anything specifically wrong with it. I think it may just be reading into it a little bit too much. So it's my opinion that, that we must see Melchizedek as a typology, or a type of Christ, but not actually Christ himself. The word typology is essentially derived from the Greek word typos for example. So Melchizedek's place in Genesis' narrative is to act as a Christ-like figure. We're not given a lot of details about him in Scripture, who he descended from, how or why he became king and priest, or when he was born and died. But what we are told is meant to highlight the attributes that would then be perfected in Christ. And this is certainly not the only occasion that a typology is used for Christ. It actually it's kind of used a lot. Uh, another example of that is Adam in the Garden of Eden. The Apostle Paul refers to him in Romans 5 that, that Ethan read this morning as a, as a type of the one who was to come. Just as sin entered into the world through one man, Adam, our reconciliation also came through one man, Jesus, the true and better Adam. 
So if we begin to change our focus from trying to solve this riddle or this mystery of who Melchizedek was and simply see him as a type of the one who was to come, then while he's still shrouded in, in a bit of mystery, I think that the pieces start to come together if we look at it like this. And we can more easily focus on his purpose in Scripture. That is to highlight the promises that we have in Christ Jesus. So with this in mind, let's focus on the few details that we are given about Melchizedek and how these things are examples of things that we see paralleled in Jesus. In verse 2, the author tells us that the literal translation of his name from Hebrew is Melchi, king, Sedek, of righteousness, king of righteousness. Melchizedek stood out in his time and cultural context as a righteous man among the spiritually and morally depraved around him, like a light in the darkness. He's also king of Salem, later Jerusalem, like I said. And, and how fitting is that? Surely this is no coincidence that the king of this city, that the city that would one day essentially be the capital city of God's people in Israel, who would all be the descendants of Abraham, who he's meeting right now, the city where God's temple would stand, where just on the outskirts of this city, the one eternal king would hang on a cross as the once and for all perfect sacrifice. And to add on to, to all of this, Salem is Hebrew for peace. Melchizedek is king of righteousness by his name and king of peace, because of the name of the city. While being king, as we've already seen, he also served as priest of the Most High God. And this isn't mentioned just to say that Melchizedek was a very busy guy with two full-time jobs. Not really even to point out that he was a good religious king. The original Hebrew readers of this passage would have understood that it wasn't it just wasn't common for a king to also be a priest. It was actually not allowed under the Mosaic law. God knew that it would, would be too much control, power, for one fallen man to hold, to be priest and king. He didn't allow it, and it never did. Now, of course, Melchizedek came before this law, uh, so he was, he was not breaking God's law. Uh, but responsibility of holding both of these roles needed to be set aside for the only one who could perfectly fulfill them at the same time. And finally, we are, while we are talking about his priesthood, Hebrews also makes a big deal out of the fact that neither Melchizedek nor Jesus descended from a line of priests. And we'll get more into the why behind that shortly. Uh, but for a quick background on that, under the Mosaic law, the law given to Moses, the 12 tribes of Israel were given different roles. Specifically, the tribe of Levi, whose role was to be the priests for the Israelites. There was really no flexibility to becoming a priest if you were not from the line of the tribe of Levi, who were specifically appointed by God to carry on the role of the priesthood for a time. Melchizedek, who lived, or 
who lived before the tribes of Israel were formed, was obviously not then of the tribe of Levi. And because there is no given record of his lineage at all, we're not told that he descended from any other line of priests. Jesus then, on the parallel, we do know his genealogy, but he was of the tribe of Judah, not Levi. And as verse 14 of Hebrews 7 says, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So when it is said that Jesus came after the order of Melchizedek, it's not saying that Jesus is in the line or genealogy of Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek has no known lineage. But it is also saying that Jesus is not tied to the priesthood of the Old Covenant, to the, under Levi. Because he is, he's not bound to the Levitical priesthood of the Old Covenant, but instead, by God's promise in Psalms 110, which said of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this is something new, a new and better covenant. Now, I want to briefly backtrack. You know, we've already gotten to, to verse uh, 14, I think, but I want to backtrack a little bit. Mention something that we sort of skipped over. Verses 4 through 10 is essentially another long point uh, talking about the tithes given to the priests. It's easy to get lost in uh, reading through that. The main point that we should take away from that paragraph, though, is found in verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Melchizedek came out to congratulate Abram after his victory and to bless him. As a, another quick side note, he, he brought out bread and wine, which I think is likely meant, to, meant by the Holy Spirit to, to be a foreshadowing of God's covenant to Abraham, as well as a connection to the body and blood of Jesus, like, kind of like our communion. But that's a whole other incredible rabbit trail, and I'm going to try not to go down. <laughs> um, after receiving the blessing from Melchizedek, uh, Abram gives a tenth of the spoils of battle to Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews is using this to show that Abram and the line of the Levitical priests that would come from his lineage were inferior to the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus' right to the priesthood is not gained simply from his heritage. It's not gained by his heritage at all, because he's a tribe of Judah. But it's set aside as something different, like Melchizedek. Something special, something superior to the law. So now that we've been talking all this time about priesthood, what need do we have for a priest? Priests and their roles and responsibilities is not something that we, at least as Protestants, spend too much time talking about. Because we know that, that we are under the new covenant. And we have no need for an earthly priest to be our mediator. The job of a priest isn't to wear kind of unusual clothes um, and, and appear more spiritually enlightened or superior to the average person. In fact, the human priest was supposed to be able to, as we read before, deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he himself 
was beset with weakness. The real responsibility of the priest was to be a mediator between God and fallen sinful man. And that's, that's the way of the whole universe, isn't it? Ever since the fall in the garden, there is sin. There is a most holy God who cannot abide with sin. And there is a priesthood to bridge the gap. And when I say God cannot abide with sin, that's easy for us to gloss over and forget just how serious of a matter that is. Don't take for granted the immense privilege that we have. As Hebrews 4, 16 says, to be able to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. That's not all how it's always been. Remember when Moses asked to see God's glory? God said that he would place him in a cleft of a rock and cover him with his hand as he passed by, because man shall not see me and live. God's glory would have been too much for Moses' fragile being to even look upon without killing him. And remember Uzziah, while walking near the, the Ark of the Covenant, while it was being transported, he thought it was going to fall. So he reached out with his hand to steady it and was immediately struck dead. He needed a, a better mediator. The fallen sinful man, Uzziah, his fragile life could not bear to touch the thing that embodied the presence of God without instant death. Yet because of the perfection and righteousness granted to us by Jesus, our great high priest, we can draw near to the throne of God. Do you understand now the privilege that we have in Christ? Now, if it's not already apparent, let's make sure that we all understand why we needed Christ to become our great high priest. Why the priesthood of a fallen man, like, one, like, like with the Levitical priests, needed to be replaced by a superior priesthood. So let's read now verse 11 of Hebrews 7. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Now Aaron was kind of the main, like first priest under the Levitical priesthood. The focus is on that, that phrase, if perfection had been attainable. Perfection was not attainable through the law or the old covenant priesthood. The Old Covenant was never meant to be the final answer. But it does point out the need for something greater. And my kids right now are, are in a phase where they are under the impression that tape can fix anything or hold anything together that they are trying to build. And I'm not talking about even duct tape or flex tape, some decent tape. I'm talking about this colored craft masking tape uh, that we have around our house. It's not even really that sticky. Um, I'm finding that stuff stuck to, to everything lately. Uh, a broken bracelet, can we tape it? That just doesn't really work that way. A broken coffee mug, can we tape it? No. 
this is probably too broken uh, for repair, with, especially with tape. Now, even with that, you know, the flex tape uh, commercial guy, I'm sure you've all seen that commercial. There's, there's a, mess, a massive water leak in this water tank, and he just pops a strip of that tape right on it, and bam, it's sealed. It's done. Um, then, he, then he makes the bottom of a boat entirely out of flex tape. And I mean, this stuff, it, it may be the best tape ever invented, but I haven't heard that any boat manufacturers have started replacing metal or fiberglass, whatever they make boat holes out of, with flex tape. If I call a plumber because I have a major pipe leak in my house, he better not show up with nothing but a roll of flex tape on his belt. <laughs> that would do nothing for me long term. It would only point out to me that I need to call a real plumber, a superior plumber. It might be a temporary fix at best, but it is still not the final answer. We need something better, something stronger and more permanent something greater. Jesus is our stronger, perfect, permanent, great high priest. As verse 16 says, Jesus became priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Indestructible life. Later in 23 and 24, it says, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That is unlike the former priests who were limited by death. And then finally, one of, one of my favorite verses in Hebrews, verse 25. It says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If you have by faith believed in the Son of God to save you by His grace, then there has been a moment that you went from lost and hopeless to redeemed and filled with eternal hope. And that is without a doubt the greatest thing that can happen in the life of sinners like us. But because there was that one moment doesn't mean that the saving act of Christ for you was only in that moment in your past. It says he always lives to make intercession for you. It feels really nice to have a brother or sister in Christ reach out to you as you're going through a difficult time to pray for you. But how much better is it that Scripture says that Jesus Christ himself is interceding for you. That means he is continuously praying for you. Mediating and advocating for you to the Father. Fulfilling his eternal role as the great high priest. We have a Savior who is able, unlike earthly priests, to save to the uttermost. We needed something greater than a priesthood held together only by genealogy. And we were given that in Christ. There's a, a worship song uh, that, I, that I hope to, to introduce to us soon called Something Greater. And obviously it's fo focusing on, on Jesus and, and what he did on the cross. 
I wish, though, that it had a verse that was about his priesthood. That's kind of an idea that we don't, don't focus on as much. And it is great that we focus on the death, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. His atoning sacrifice, that is the most important thing. I kind of wish there were more worship songs that I, that I couldn't really find to, this past week as I was looking on, on what Jesus is doing right now for us every day, interceding for you. But still, I want to, to read a few verses of, of this song as I finish. The song's called Something Greater, which I feel like this entire chapter has been trying to say that we needed something greater than that earthly human priesthood. That was not permanent. Christ reigns and is our priest forever. A song says, Beneath the broken shadow, where sin and death did reign, the King of glory left his throne aside. The clouds of heaven opened and mercy fell like rain to bring the darkened past and future bright. Something greater, something greater has come. You are greater, greater than anything I've ever known or seen. You're stronger, stronger than the grace that once held me. Your love is deeper and wider in the highest place, be lifted higher still. Oh, you have and always will be something greater. Please pray with me. God, we thank you that you are that something greater. Lord, that the the whole law and priesthood of the Old Testament wasn't meant to be perfect, but it was meant to point us to our need for something perfect, something greater. Lord, your priesthood will never end. It will go on from now to eternity constantly interceding for us. We praise you for your life and death and resurrection, your atoning sacrifice for our sins. Lord, help us not to forget, though, that that you are continuously saving us yesterday, today, tomorrow, for the rest of eternity from the wrath that we deserve. And that we have a great high priest that we can come to with confidence. Not out of fear. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your sacrifice and your love and your constant intercession. In your name we pray. Amen.